Welcome back to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning. I'm Katherine Ross, Executive Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. Today, as we kick off our second year of podcasts, I'm switching roles. I will be the one being interviewed about this Dead Ideas podcast and how it came to be. My interviewer is my CTL colleague, Dr. Ian Althaus, who is a Senior Assistant Director on our Graduate Student Programs and Services team. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. So Catherine, before I formally introduce you to our listeners, I want to set the stage for today's podcast. Many of us at the CTL have thought that it might be a good time to introduce the new season and remind listeners about our goals in producing this podcast. But most importantly, we thought it might be a good idea to give our listeners a chance to learn a bit more about you, the host, and why you wanted to do this podcast. So with that, I think it's my turn to say, let's get started. Catherine, uh, you and I both joined the center a little over four years ago, during which I've had the great pleasure of getting to know you and work with you. But today, I thought we might introduce you a bit more to our listeners because your work in the field of educational development in higher ed started long before you came to Columbia. Catherine is the executive director of the Columbia Center for Teaching and Learning. She has spent the last 25 years working in teaching centers at the University of Texas at Austin, the University of Connecticut, Wake Forest University, and since 2017 at Columbia University. She has MAs in Russian and teaching English to speakers of other languages, and a PhD in Russian and applied linguistics, as well as adult second language acquisition. She has taught English, Russian, and applied linguistics in all of the above-mentioned universities, as well as at Takai University in Japan. Her work with instructors in teaching and learning spans universities across the US, Saudi Arabia, China, and Ukraine. So Catherine, in many ways, this podcast is a product of Diane Pike's paper from 2010. But I was wondering, actually, if you might share a little bit about how your background led you to think about these implicit assumptions that are embedded in higher education. I'm really thinking about what led you to start thinking about dead ideas or to start identifying them. So I think it was really my background, my immersion in the world of languages and language teaching. I, you know, had studied Spanish and Russian as an undergrad. I lived with a family in Madrid for a while. Um, you know, I think I was very attuned already to the ways in which culture influences um, behaviors and communication, both written and spoken. And when I had that first experience of uh, moving to Japan and teaching in a Japanese university, I was fully prepared on how to teach English to speakers of other languages. But when I walked in that classroom the first day, I recognized very quickly that I had violated some profound assumptions that students held about what students do in a classroom and what instructors do in a classroom in Japan. And it was a really quick lesson that I really had to think about my own expectations. Maybe they're not normal in, in a Japanese classroom, right? So I realized I had to learn a ton more about Japanese culture, um, 
about what kinds of classroom techniques they're accustomed to or they think should be used by instructors. I researched Japanese communication styles. I talked with my students about their their college experience and what it meant to them. And I was stunned to learn that there was an expression uh, at that time in Japan that university is play because they work and study so intensively in high school to get into college that they view university as a time to relax and have friends and really create a network. So that was certainly a stunning revelation for me. So after finishing three years teaching in Japan, I moved to University of Nevada, Reno, and I was teaching in an intensive English program which was for all international students who wanted to attend U.S. universities, but it was at that point largely Japanese students. And the experiences I had and what I had learned in understanding the context of teaching in Japan really helped me unpack then what happens in American classrooms um, that these students will need to know about and be prepared to engage with when they become students in a U.S. university. So from there, I was really now examining American cultural assumptions about what university classrooms look like. After finishing my Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin, I ended up taking a job at the University of Connecticut working with international graduate students who were all going to become TAs and be teaching at the university um, in all different disciplines. And there, the work I had done previously to unpack for Japanese students what it takes to be successful in a U.S. classroom I was able to then expand on to think about what do these international grad students need to know about student expectations of teaching, but also their departmental expectations of teaching and how do they navigate that cultural terrain. Through the years of working with these international graduate students, I was privileged to observe well over a hundred classes um, I was able to talk with the TAs extensively about their experiences, their surprises, their puzzlement about what was happening in the U.S. classroom. Um, I was able to talk with students, and I realized that we also had a lot of work to do with students because students come in with very dead ideas about what happens in college. A lot of these TAs were typically teaching freshman classes. So these are students who are new and they have these preconceived ideas about what happens in a classroom. Um, so there were a lot of um, miscommunications happening and misinterpretations of things um, that were happening. So all of that started to solidify my belief that a lot of what we do every day in the academy in teaching and learning that we just think of as normal behaviors are really very culturally bound behaviors. And in 2009, uh, I happened to read Laura Rendon's book, which had just come out at that time, uh, Senti Pensante, Sensing, Thinking, Teaching for Social Justice and Liberation. And that was my aha moment. It, she really uncovered all of those 
cultural underpinnings of Western higher education in a way that uh, validated and strengthened my work in being able to help instructors unpack their beliefs and assumptions that are based on these cultural values. As a another a language instructor who has worked you know, deeply in, in the field of Spanish language and literature and thought deeply about culture, I think what's really interesting is that you've highlighted how these implicit assumptions occur by like among students, among our faculty. Uh, they can also be embedded into not just all universities, but one specific university and even kind of within that, within a specific department. Um, but I'm wondering now, uh, you know, Diane Pike's paper from 2010 was a, kind of like the inspiration for this podcast. I'm wondering when was it or what was it about Diane Pike's paper that really resonated with you, especially the uh, metaphor of dead ideas to kind of move away from implicit cultural assumptions into this naming of it as a dead idea? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what happened was uh, Diane Pike's paper came out in 2010, right after I had read Santi Pensante. And I was searching for a way to engage instructors, both grad students and, and faculty, with Laura Rendon's ideas. But that's a, it's a complex reading. And um, when I read Diane Pike's paper, I realized that that metaphor was a very powerful metaphor for promoting reflection, also in kind of a fun way, um, in encouraging instructors to uncover their, their own dead ideas, but also, you know, maybe the dead ideas of their colleagues that they hear in the hallways in their department. Um, the metaphor made engaging with the cultural assumptions uh, much easier and, and more interesting, I think, for instructors. So Diane's, Diane Pike's paper really gave me another set of tools that, uh, that created that engagement factor so that we could really dig into the ideas that Laura Rendon had exposed and, uh, and get instructors to apply it to their own teaching. What's really interesting in the way that you're describing this too is that you're thinking not only about working with graduate students or with faculty, but you're also about thinking about how faculty interact with one another. I'm wondering, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what you see as uh, you know, the impetus to do this work from the Center for Teaching and Learning side. Uh, what, what about the location of a Center for Teaching and Learning? Uh, you know, why that center? Why is that center the one that's supposed to be forwarding these conversations about dead ideas? You know, teaching centers are interesting in the ways in which they sit in the academy. Uh, they are very often, not, not always, but very often um, located in a provost's office. But because of the work we do with instructors, um, both grad students and faculty, we're often also sitting in classrooms and sitting in offices of instructors and having these deep conversations with them about their teaching. But we also see sort of the institutional language around teaching and learning and the institutional practices. We get to see what departments are like, what schools are doing around teaching and learning and supporting teaching and learning of their instructors. And so 
we we see all of these aspects together in a way that not a lot of people in the academy do. So I felt like we were uniquely positioned to lead this work, this unpacking work with instructors. Be, you know, we just have this 360 view. I couldn't agree more about the fact that center for, uh, Centers for Teaching and Learning really do have a, a holistic view of the campus teaching culture, especially because we are sitting in those classrooms often. So we're also navigating the ways in which students are responding to their instructors. Um, I want to I want to kind of pause for a second and go back to the the metaphor um, because I think it's really interesting that dead ideas really struck you um, because in past episodes some guests um, even Diane Pike in her original uh, address to the American Sociological Society referred to dead ideas also as zombie ideas right suggesting that they just won't die um, so. Given that there is this alternative of maybe zombie ideas, why did you choose dead ideas for the title of this podcast? Yeah, it took me a while to to sort that out, but ultimately, you know, relying on what little bit I've seen, like move trailers for zombie movies, I feel like zombies are dead, but they're in our face. Like they're coming through the door. They're coming after us. And dead ideas aren't that, right? They're deeply, deeply buried and out of sight. And they don't, they don't come after us. We have to literally like dig them up and unearth them if we want to confront them. You just don't have to do that with a zombie. They're right there. <laughs> I appreciate that uh, distinction. I hadn't really thought about the fact that the zombies would be coming after us in a way that the dead ideas just happen to be present and, and kind of latent. So, Catherine, now that we've thought about uh, why dead ideas and not zombie ideas, maybe you could explain to me a little bit more about why you chose to deeply examine dead ideas in the format of a podcast. Why not something uh, like a talk or a journal article more aligned with uh, Diane Pike's paper? Uh, these are communications that are more typical of higher education. So why a podcast? Well, um, you know, at this point in my career, this is a real passion project. And the vice provost was encouraging us to consider a CTL podcast. And I thought, you know, the theme of Dead Ideas is a is a natural, broad umbrella to talk about a whole lot of ideas under. So a podcast made sense to me in that, in that way, because in a paper, you're much more constrained with the number of topics you could dive into. Um, and it's also, not everyone reads papers, right? Not everyone listens to podcasts, but a lot of people do. So why not try a different venue to really explore and go deep into this idea of dead ideas. Also, a podcast format allows me to bring other voices in to speak to this topic in a way that's difficult and maybe even not possible in a journal, single journal article. So, when you bring those other voices in, people get to hear uh, the guests talking about their own discoveries, their own uh, ideas that they want to unpack. And you hear 
that excitement and their passion for this work. And to me, that's inspiring. When you hear people talking about their projects and their understandings and the things that have challenged them in the academy, I think that is moving in a way that a paper is not. So I I just think back to my conversations with some of the change agents that I've been able to speak with, people like Carl Wyman or Diane Pike herself and uh, Jesse Stommel and um, instructors at Columbia and students at Columbia, like the, the excitement in their voices and the intense passion for changing higher ed is, I just think it's remarkable. And you just don't get that out of a paper. Um, and I think a podcast expands our reach in a novel way. So, um, you know, academic papers abound and there's often just not enough time to read them all. But sometimes people have a little more space to listen to a podcast because it's something you can do while you're commuting or doing, you know, something else, taking a walk. So I felt like it was worth trying to see if we could engage with um, instructors, not just at Columbia, but also around the country, around the world, um, with these dead ideas. So I think it offers people from other institutions, other kinds of educational systems, a window into the U.S. educational system, and it almost creates like an open education platform to talk about higher ed writ large and teaching and learning in higher ed writ large. So, and there's no fee. So anyone can access it and listen to it. For me, that it's that last point of yours, Catherine, that, uh, that really resonates, I guess. I, I think it's inspiring for us to think about podcasts, not just as a, a tool for entertainment, but also as something you know, valuable for the educational realm. Uh, I think your point about changing up the format, trying to reach people in a different way is also really important. It's also probably something we can bring to our own educational practices, our own pedagogical practices. Right, thinking about maybe we don't always have to assign the journal article, but maybe that same researcher has done a podcast might be an, another kind of interesting way to reach our students. Um, so, with all that said, though, uh, you know the excavation work that you talk about, right, digging up these dead ideas, um, has been going on for a long time. Uh, it takes a lot of energy, and and making a podcast also takes a lot of energy, especially since we are accustomed to generally writing uh, academic papers. So, I guess. I'm really curious as to, you know, what do we do um, once we've dug up these dead ideas, right? We've put all this work into it. So what, are, what happens? What do we do differently once we unearth these dead ideas? And what would change in our teaching practices? I think last year was a really good example of what we could change in our teaching practices Every episode was focused on a teaching practice and invited uh, instructors to reflect on what they're doing currently and unpack why they might want to consider changing it. So we had, you know, for example, Jesse Stommel talking about ungrading, which is a very thought-provoking uh, concept. And we had people talking about 
assessment and how you can totally rethink the function of assessment in your course, right? It's not just about ranking students, but it can be used as a tool that um, promotes learning and helps students see if they're learning the concepts and skills that they need to be developing. So all of those episodes from last year focused on various kinds of common teaching behaviors, writing your syllabus, um, grading your students, how you, um, you know, even ideas about like online teaching, given the amount of online teaching that was happening last year. So I think we've done a good job of really diving into helping individual instructors reflect on their practices, the so-called normal practices of, of higher ed teaching. Um, and I think this fall might be a good time to turn a little bit and maybe focus more on a bigger picture way of changing teaching in the academy and thinking about systems that are related to teaching and learning, not just individual instructor behaviors. Well, that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I see what you were saying about these common classroom practices. And so I guess, and how they are much more individual. So I guess my question then would be why shift away from individual practices that, you know, the, our listeners could enact uh, to these larger systems? And, and what kind of systems are we talking about? You know, my fear is that if we only focus on the individual instructor changes, we're not addressing the broader culture of the academy. And that broader culture could be inhibiting for individual faculty who want to make changes to their teaching. So the ways in which we evaluate teaching, for example, is a system, right? And it's a system based on some really dead ideas about how teaching should be evaluated, who should be doing the evaluation, how those evalu the, how the information is collected about an instructor's teaching, how it's weighted. I mean, just some really dead ideas there that have to change because otherwise the things we're encouraging instructors to do, they can't do without fearing punishment from the system, right? Systems of grading, Systems of assessment, you know, the ways in which in some disciplines, high stakes testing seems to be the only way that you're allowed to sort of assess whether students are learning what they need to learn or not. Systems of credentialing and, and what I would call gatekeeping in the academy. Um, I think to really support individual faculty in changing their teaching, we have to also change the systems around them. I think that's a really profound moment for us to, to kind of reflect on that even if we want to encourage individual change, that the systems that we exist in, right, these cultures, the implicit assumptions of the cultures of teaching in higher ed may actually be working against the changes that the institution itself wants the instructors to pursue. So as we shift gears then for this fall, and we're starting to think about these systems uh, and exploring those, I guess my question is for you, what is it that keeps you inspired and motivates you to do this work? I mean, these are big topics to unpack and, and to dig into. 
They are. And I've been chipping away at this for a very long time. But I do have this kind of stubborn streak in me, and I really do want to change higher education. Um, I want to move the needle. So I think I have a lot of intrinsic motivation. I'm also really inspired by the work of my colleagues in the Columbia CTL, but also in CTLs broadly, colleagues that I've worked with for decades who are also trying to make these changes happen. And I feel like I get such energy from, from them as well. So there's a lot of motivation for me just in the day-to-day work and with the people that I work with. I think extrinsically, I get to talk with some really amazing guests. They bring in ideas that I've never thought of. They've uncovered dead ideas where I didn't even see them. And that is super exciting and motivating for me. And it's such a privilege to be able to have these conversations with with all of these different kinds of guests. I think what I'm really looking forward to this fall is conversations with people who are really pushing change at systems levels. So I get to talk with Kevin Gannon, the author of Radical Hope, um, about his take on some of the issues he sees with the evaluation of faculty, for example. And also to ask him a question about, you know, how do you write a book on radical hope and know that instructors who decide they want to teach in the ways you're advocating for are going to be okay when they meet those evaluation systems? That's extraordinarily exciting to me. Um, I'm going to get to talk with Laura Rendon, who wrote Senti Pensante, who has been a deep source of inspiration for me. So that's thrilling. And um, I've, uh, I've already had a conversation with two instructors from Teachers College, um, Aaron Pallas and Anna Newman, f- um, who wrote a book uh, called Convergent Teaching. And it's a very thought-provoking book about the place of undergraduate education in higher education, as well as the public discourse around the value of higher education. And what does higher education need to change to make teaching better. Um, Ultimately, I will get a chance to talk with uh, Josh Kim from Dartmouth and Eddie Maloney from Georgetown about some very radical ideas they have for changing up the systems in in higher ed um, in their book called uh, Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education. So, how could I not be motivated to keep doing this work when all of these people are willing to come and talk and share their brilliant ideas with us? It's extraordinary. Wow. I, I mean, Catherine, at the, uh, earlier on in our conversation, um, you brought up why the podcast and why the podcast format. And one of the things you said was how bringing in the voices of other individuals, other thinkers, helps us to hear the inspiration and the motivation, kind of their excitement, enthusiasm for the work that they're doing. And I, hearing you talk about these interviews actually really uh, is inspiring to me, but also I, we can hear all of the excitement and enthusiasm in your voice right now. So I, I couldn't be more on board with that rationale for a podcast. It sounds like we have an exciting lineup of scholars 
uh, coming up for this fall. And I, I really can't wait to hear what ideas that they point out and how they start to unpack these legacy systems within higher ed. I think at this point, though, I, this brings us to the end of our interview. Um, so thank you so much, Catherine, for bringing us through the birth of this podcast and giving us a sneak peek at where we're going next. Your enthusiasm has been uh, very contagious. Well, thank you, Ian, for taking the time to talk with me and for motivating me to do this podcast um, and for helping to move higher education teaching to a better place. Uh, I really appreciate you your help in kicking off this season of Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.